As Christians, we are all about Jesus. And so every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that the person and work of Jesus is most clearly revealed. Our sermon text this week is from Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you, uh, and it's good to be with you. Uh, you at home. Uh, I, I know you're watching this uh, a little later. We apologize for, I believe the internet went out and that was the issue, but uh, we love you. We're glad to be together, even if it's a little, uh, a little later than we planned. All right, we are in a series uh, that we are titling A Meaningful Presence. We're asking a pretty simple question. What does it look like in a season like this? A season with a pandemic, racial tension, what will likely be a divisive election season? What, what does it look like to have a meaningful presence with one another and with our neighbors? What does it look like to live united together and for the renewal of our world? And the way that we're approaching the series is we're coming out of the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians, there's this series of one statements, one hope, one faith, one baptism, Last week we looked at one God and Father, and this week we're looking at one Lord. Lord, someone who has power and authority over others, asking if Jesus is our Lord, our functional Lord, what kind of presence would we have with one another and with our neighbors? And the text that we're looking at in Ephesians 1 is a prayer. Uh, it's, it's a prayer written by the Apostle Paul. And there are a few places in the, in the, in the New Testament where Paul writes these prayers, and each one of the prayers have both a logical flow and an emotional heartbeat to them. And where those intersect, where the logical flow of Paul's prayer and where the emotional heartbeat of the prayer intersect, that, that's where you get to the centerpiece of the prayer. That's where you get to the heartbeat of what Paul is trying to drive at and get through. And for this prayer, it the, 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 that collision between logical flow and emotional heart happened in verses 18 and 19, and so that's where we're going to focus on today. But in the heart of the prayer, when it comes to Jesus being our Lord, here's what we're going to learn. 
We're going to learn what it gives us, what it gives God, and what kind of presence it leads to. So what it gives us first. Um, Let's pick it up in verse 16 just to read through and get some context before we hit verse 18. It says, I do not cease to give thanks to you. That's not true. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul is not. It doesn't matter. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, that's, that's experiential language, but we'll come back to that in a second. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Now, the word, uh, the English word hope is generally a word that we use in a pretty elastic manner. It gets used as synonyms for a lot of different words. And so, when we talk about hope, often it's sort of a wish, a desire, a dream. Uh, But that's not what biblical hope is speaking about, not at all. The, The definition of the word hope here is this, looking forward to something with reason for confidence. See, biblical hope, Christian hope, is not about wishing or dreaming or hoping. That's not true, hoping. I shouldn't have used that word. Biblical hope is about confidence. Confidence grounded in something. The question is, confidence in what? Well, um, we we opened the, the passage reading 13 and 14. 13 and 14 is the end of sort of the first part of um, uh, of Ephesians 1 before Paul launches into this prayer, and so it's the context of the prayer. Let's, let's read it again, verse 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here's what Paul wants you to be confident in. Here is what Paul wants you to be confident and secure in what Jesus has done for you and the promise that it brings, that Jesus has purchased your life, that there is a hope and inheritance that is waiting for you because of what he has done. Now, your salvation, it's not something that you simply can lose because of what you did last night or last week or last month or last year or that thing in college that no one out there knows about. It's something grounded and secure that you can be confident in because it's grounded in what Jesus has done for you. And when you know that, when you're confident in what Jesus has done, and like, I don't mean um, you're aware of that, you know that. I mean like when that confidence in what Jesus has done, who he is on your behalf, the, the inheritance that is yours, like when that animates your life, when that, when that inflames your heart, when it shapes the way that you live, then, then Jesus is no longer simply a theological Lord. He is your functional Lord, and it changes the way that you experience life. It changes the way that you go life, go through life. Like it, imagine with me, if I could try to illustrate it. Imagine with me that you were sentenced to five years in prison. I have no idea what you did, but you got a five-year prison sentence. And you went into prison, and you went in not knowing, am I going to be able to make it through the violence of prison? And if I do make it through, I don't know what's waiting for me on the other side. I don't know what kind of life I'm going to have. I don't know if anybody's going to be there. I won't have any money to live on. I have no idea what life is going to look like on the other side of this five-year prison sentence. You would live those five years riddled with anxiety, fear, uncertainty. But if you had a five-year prison sentence, 
and you went into prison, and you knew nothing's going to happen to me in here. I'm going to be just fine. And on the other side of that, you had $50 million waiting for you to live on at the end of those five years. You're going to experience those five years in prison radically different. You're going to have two separate sets of experiences of those five years. Paul is saying that you have something waiting for you that will shape and change your experience of life. Now, we, we live in a world of broken promises. We live in a world of broken promises on display right now. Listen, RNC, DNC, vote for us, and this is what life is going to be like. This is the utopia that we're going to offer. It'll be a broken promise. Marriage vows that aren't lived up to. Parents who don't exactly live up to the promises that they made for their children or to their children. We live in a world of broken promises, and Paul is saying here that you have a promise in Jesus that will never be broken that can actually get you through life in a world of broken promises, that can shape and animate the way that you live in life experientially. It can get you through life in a world of broken promises. And you can be confident and you can have a confident biblical hope in that. So here's what we have with Jesus as Lord. This is what it gives you, a confidence to go through life. Not an arrogance, not an I'm better than you, not a, I figured it out, why can't y'all out there, but a confidence to get through life in a broken world, a life full of broken promises. Now, point two, what it gives God, what it gives God. Look back at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, Paul does a bit of a shift here in chapter one. So we just read back in verse 13 and 14 about an inheritance that you have in Christ. But is that the inheritance that Paul is speaking about right here? No. Look back at the text again. The riches of his, his, God's glorious inheritance. This is not speaking about um, our inheritance. This is speaking about God's inheritance. And what is the inheritance? Finish the sentence his glorious inheritance in the saints. Sojourn. Sojourn at home. We so deeply want you to see and believe and be shaped by this. You, you don't just have an inheritance in Christ. In Christ, you are an inheritance. You are God's inheritance. You don't just have an inheritance in Christ. You are God's inheritance. Now, where did Paul get this from? We didn't make it up out of nowhere. This is ripped from the pages of the Old Testament. Where Israel belongs to God, God belongs to Israel. They are seen as his heritage, his inheritance. And almost every commentator out there that I could find um, sees a promise in the backdrop of, 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 of this usage, Paul's usage of inheritance, where we belong to God, God belongs to us, this interplay in here, and every one of them sees echoes of the Exodus in the backdrop. Echoes of the Exodus, where Israel was delivered out of slavery in Egypt into a promised inheritance, a land that was waiting for them, where life would flow and be beautiful. So here's the point, that every Every commentator I could find sees a deliverance in the use of this word, that it was a deliverance 
that led to an inheritance. And the same is true for us. The same is true for you. You weren't simply born into this. You were made into an inheritance. You were made into an inheritance. It was a deliverance that leads you into an inheritance that makes you an inheritance. It was the deliverance of Jesus on the cross. When Jesus was dying on the cross, when his blood was being poured out, you know what you were, you, you know what's happening to you? You were being made from a rock into a diamond, from something we just skip across water to something we want to keep forever. Something we pass down from generation to generation to generation. Made from a rock into a diamond, you become this family jewel in the sight of God. You know the, the, the look on a child when they, they look at their father and they know that my dad is just proud of me and loves me and wants me? Like the way that kid just lights up. Like listen, the, the, the father sees you as an inheritance that he wants. He sees you as an inheritance that he wants. Single and lonely, marriage falling apart, cancer. This is how the Father sees you, an inheritance that he wants. And when that sinks deep in, here, here's what happens. Here's what happens. It, it shapes you. Like it, it, it changes the way that you see yourself. It changes the way that you see the church. It's no longer just a place to get needs met, felt needs. Like it's, we are the inheritance of the Father. And listen, you, you want that to like mold your heart? Here's one practical thing you can do. Start, start praying two kinds of prayers at the same time. Pray, pray fair, pray, not fairs, pray prayers that go our Father and Almighty God. Pray like we have a Father and a Lord. What's that? Light your heart up. All right. What does Jesus being our Lord give to God? It gives him an inheritance in the saints, the church, us, you, me. Now, point three, what kind of presence does that lead to? Like the confidence that we have in the gospel that creates an identity as an inheritance in Christ, us as an inheritance in Christ. What, what kind of presence does that lead to? Well, Back at verse 18, or 18 and 19. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Now, I have to tell you this. A lot of theologians out there, they think in verse 19 that Paul is just exaggerating. That he's exaggerating, he's exaggerating to make a point. He's, he's, he's doing it for effect because the words immeasurable greatness and power, um, the, the Greek words that he uses there, they're, they're the words that we get hyper, mega, dynamite from. And so when Paul shows up in verse 19, he, he, is, he, he, just, he jumps in and he says, listen, the hyper, mega, dynamite toward us who believe. And so they, they go, all right, come on, Paul. You're exaggerating, we know it. But oh no, no he's not. In a world where most people use power for themselves, Paul is saying that Jesus showed up on the scene with power that you couldn't possibly fathom and he used it for the good of others, for the good of you, for us. Power to do what? To save and to keep you. 
to save and to keep you. And when you see Jesus using his power, his lordship for you, for others, that can't help but create humility in us. It can't help but create humility in us. Can't help it. It's a marker of his life, and so it should be a defining marker of ours. Look at how the, the prayer ends in verse 22. He gave him his head over all things, head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ the head, the church, the body. What's the point of this? Why, why is that at the end of this prayer? Listen to F.F. F. Bruce, sharp theologian. He says, the, the relationship between head and body, the relationship between head and body suggests a vital union between Christ and the church, sharers of a common life, which is his own risen life communicated to his people. Sharers of a common life, vital union, no head without the body, no body without the head. Sharing in a common life, the common life, us with the risen son. Listen, sojourn. The degree to which we believe that is the degree to which we will be marked by humility. Maybe I could take it a step farther and say it like this. If humility doesn't mark your life, neither does the Lordship of Christ. Seeing our inheritance in Christ, seeing us as an inheritance in Christ hasn't sunk in if we are not marked, tagged by humility. And true humility, it dethrones you from your heart and puts Jesus in its rightful place in your life. True humility looks like you being dethroned in your own life and putting Jesus in his rightful place. Pride will destroy unity in a church. Pride will undercut and erode our ability to work for the renewal of our world and the good of others. All it does is destroy relationships. Unity among us, renewal in the world, the road that will travel is a road marked by humility. Marked by humility. But here's the challenge. Fifteen-ish uh, years of pastoral ministry, almost no one has ever come to me and said, you know, I'm really... I'm really struggling with thinking more of myself than you and thinking I'm a lot better person than you are. Almost no one's ever said that. I have had somebody say that. But it hasn't happened often. Humility in our own life, it's hard to identify. It's hard to see. It's hard to spot in our own life, in ourselves. And so a few questions. Do you acknowledge your own ignorance and limitations? Do you? Listen, humility looks, uh, searches diligently for the truth and is willing to say, I don't know. Humility is willing to say the words, I don't know. Are you willing to honestly engage with a variety of viewpoints? Are you willing to give honest credence and dialogue with people who disagree with you without just getting combative and having to make a point? Or do you simply look for people that reinforce what you already believe? 
that is nothing but intellectual flattery, which Solomon would say is for fools. Do you think twice before you speak, and when you speak is to build others up? Listen, I, I remember um, when I first started working at the church I worked at in Dallas, I, I'd been there six months or so, and I, um, I, I, I love to try to make points and be clear, you know, I just, I wanted to, I wanted to be seen a certain way, right? And, and I remember um, sitting in my office one day and my boss walking in and sitting down and saying, hey man, I, I need you to know something. At some point, Brandon, you have to make a decision. Do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference? Do we speak in a way that makes a difference? That's there to build one another up or are we just here to make points? Do you say you're sorry and ask for forgiveness? When was the last time you looked at your roommate, your spouse, your children, a friend, someone in your parish and just said, hey listen, I, I, I know that I did this and this and I know that I've been acting this way and I'm just, I'm sorry and I need you to forgive me. I need your forgiveness. Here's one, would you ever ask a coworker what it's like to work with you. I, I know a lot of you right now are probably thinking, Brandon, that's a pretty churchy question. Like, you, you have to ask your coworkers what it's like to, you're a pastor, of course, you have to ask that, and I do have to ask that. But, but what if the church, what if the church went into their corporate job or their job where they're uh, being ranked or compared to the people that they work with who they're competing for promotions with and said, hey, listen, I, I want to do a good job. I want to be promoted. I want you to do a good job. But I also, I also want to know what it's like for you to experience me in the workplace because I want to be a good neighbor, even those people I work with. Could you imagine the renewal in the world that would happen if the church lived so radically different in our vocational lives? Here's one for our church in the season that we've been in. Are people who still want to meet over Zoom and are not ready to meet in person, are they an inconvenience to you? Or are they people that we're willing to lay down our preferences and our lives and our desires for the good of others? Humility is hard to identify. It's a tough road to walk down, but it, it, its starting point is maybe asking some honest questions like these or maybe even asking other people to answer the question for you. That's scary. I don't want to do it either. But it might be a good practice. A community marked by the humility of Jesus a community that is confident in the gospel and what Jesus has done for us that creates an identity that we live out of that just breeds humility in us and in one another in a community. Listen, that is the kind of community that you and I so desperately need, and that is the kind of community our neighbors need to be invited into. It is what we need for one another and what our neighbors need from us. And that's what a community with Jesus as their Lord, not a theological Lord that we could write on a paper and answer some questions, but I mean a functional Lord that is governing our hearts. That's what it looks like to have Jesus as our Lord. A community marked by humility. Living united for the renewal of the world. Confident identity, breeding humility. May that be so of us, Sojourn.
Let me pray. Father, thank you for the men, the women, and the children in this room. Thank you for the men, women, and children gathering at home online. We love you and we love them. May this mark us. May we be a community marked by humility under the lordship of your son. May that be so radically countercultural in our world. May it unite us, may we stay united, and may we be a people who work for the renewal and the good of others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.